Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It's good to see you uh, today jumping into uh, the second part in our series over uh, the gospel of, of Luke. So we're going to jump right into to things today. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. I don't know if I said that right. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he served as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the house uh, or outside on the hour of incense. And they appeared at him, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things have taken place because you did not believe my words, which be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you draw near to us through your word, that you form us, that you do your work in us. Lord, bring out belief Uh, in our hearts, Uh, bring out an allegiance and a desperation to follow King Jesus and a a belief and understanding, God, that you are a good father. Help us form our faith, deepen our faith, grow our trust in you, and let us uh, just be taken back by the beauty of your plan and what you've done and how you've orchestrated it all uh, for, for those you love and to reconcile things that were broken long ago. God, do your work in us. Be honored here. We pray that in your name. Amen. So jumping in, we'll just start with maybe a question. Uh, Do you consider yourself a patient person? Just start there, great way to begin. And maybe further beyond, do you consider yourself a patient person? Maybe the litmus test is the people close to you consider you a patient person. I, I think for us, we have probably the emotional awareness to be able to field that question somewhat accurately. And some of you hear the question, hey, are you a patient person? And you're immediately like, no. Not at all. Like, that's not my jam. That's not my thing. I'm good at some things. That's not it. That's not my strong suit. 
Waiting is actually suffering in my book. Waiting is a form of agony. Let's put it this way, I would rather public speak than wait. Or I would even rather like hit the same pinky toe every day for two months than to wait. Like waiting is awful. I don't want to wait. And our culture forms this in a lot of us because we're built upon this premise that we get all things right now. We watch movies at the click of a button. I'll show my age. Uh, My boy has no idea what it's like to call Blockbuster for three weeks in a row and see if your movie's been returned. He has no idea of the suffering that we went through. Right? We order things off of Amazon and they show up in 48 hours. And we can purchase about anything that we want on our phone while driving through traffic on the way home from work. It's not probably advisable, but let's be honest, some of us have done it. I may have heard of somebody else doing it. This is the world we live in, a world of immediate gratification. And yet, even though it's the world that we kind of live in and many things can be kind of garnered and gotten a hold of in a really quick amount of time, that's not really the way that life works when it comes to the big stuff. They don't come as fast as we want them to. Think with me maybe for a moment, what's the longest that you've had to wait for something? And we'll have to shift our gaze away from Amazon packages or Grubhub food that you want or even a dinner reservation at a place that you've been wanting to go. What's the longest that you've had to wait for something that you really really wanted, something formative, maybe something that you were maybe even a little bit desperate for. Maybe it was for a kid and you had to wait a really, really, really long time to have that happen. We, we know that there's been uh, people in our own family of, of the body of Christ who, who that process took a very long time. That wait was way longer than they thought it was going to be. Maybe it was for your wedding night. Maybe you held the line. You put a ring on it or got a ring put on it and you're like, let's go. Like, when's the date? Let's go. I've held the line. It's time to, to be married because you want the, the cake at the, the wedding. Maybe it was for a house or a degree, or maybe it was to get out of your parents' house. You could not wait to get out. And that wait just seemed forever. We got to share last week the awesome news at our member meeting that we signed a lease for a building. Uh, that's right. Just a little over a week ago. Can I tell you that was a long wait? I I just put up some stats. It was 643 weeks from our first public service to the time I signed the lease, 643. That's 12 years and three months. That is 4,499 days. That's 107,952 hours of waiting. That's a quarter of my life. That's a lot of waiting. I'll be honest, the wait was brutal at some times, and if I would be really honest, it was infuriating at times. There were literal people I wanted to scream at multiple times in the process of trying to get a building. I wanted to and did cry multiple times in the want to get a building, and if I were to be really honest with you, there were times where I felt pretty sad for myself, threw up my hands and go, God, when can we get something nice? Like 12 years, when? Waiting is hard, and you want to give up a lot of times when you have to wait, especially when you have to wait for something way longer than you anticipated the wait being, then it's kind of a form of agony. And it's, it's tough to wait because we go through a gamut of emotions when we're waiting. I don't know about you, but we go from m- maybe anxiety to worry, to sadness to anger, and And then maybe we backtrack to frustration and then we hit up anger again and then we go back to sadness all over again before adding a side of self-pity mixed in these waves of feeling like it's just never gonna happen. Waiting is hard. 
And, and while our 12-year wait to sign a lease was extremely long, uh, the text kicks off today as we kind of get dropped into a story of a over 400-year wait and counting. 12 years, 400 years. I, I don't even know that we can wrap our minds around waiting for something 400 years. See, we wait days and we wait weeks or maybe months or years. And maybe for a few of us that we've had to wait really all of our life for something that we wanted. 400-year wait doesn't seem like a real thing, though. It, it doesn't seem like that could actually happen. That is a weight that has been passed on like a baton seven, eight, nine times generationally, father to son. Here you go, buddy. Here you go. A weight that just keeps going. A weight that started with people who died long before you were, you were ever born. A weight that feels foreign because it didn't start while you were actually alive. Try to put yourself in a position of having a weight handed down to you that you didn't create in your own heart. It was just given. All of a sudden, there's a weight placed in your hands and in your heart, and you have to decide, what do I do with this? How do I deal with that? How do I navigate waiting? Do I hold the line? Do I keep this train of, of hope going? Would you be able to keep hoping in something that started with a person who died 300 years prior to you? Would you be able to hold that line and say, right, I'm going I'm to remain faithful to the, to the weight? Or would you say, you are some fools who should have given up a long time ago? I'll do what you never would. You're insane. I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. Why would I give myself to a pipe dream that started with, with people that I've never even met? Why would I do that? Again, that's where we're dropped into the story today. If we back up for a moment, if this is your first week in Luke, you, you, you only missed one. Uh, we, we saw a kind of thematic description over the book. It, it's kind of a, a precursor, a mini preview of what's to come in the text last week. And if you're a movie buff, this would be like an epic movie where there's this aerial scene of like a drone or a bird, and it's flying through beautiful territory towards the very first scene. You're not actually there yet, and the narrator is speaking context into what's going to happen next over the movie. This is kind of what happens. It's Luke, he's narrating. You're not even into the the first scene, and he begins to tell you, hey, I'm writing all of this to give you an orderly account so that you may have confidence in what you have uh, been taught and, and confidence in what has been accomplished so that your faith may be strong is what he's trying to tell you. We didn't spend a lot of time on it last week, probably because we, we knew that we were going to hit it a little bit this week. The wording there is extremely important. Luke doesn't say, I'm going I'm to write to you about the things that happened. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to write down a story or I'm going to write down the history. He, he says something different, and the words here matter. I'm going to write to you about what has been accomplished. Not what some guy did, not just history. What has been accomplished, what has been fulfilled. This is a pointed statement. The life of Jesus isn't just a story. It's not just history. It's not just an event the life of Jesus, what he did and what happened through it, it actually accomplished and fulfilled something else. His life accomplished something that had been pointed to long before he ever came. This is a statement that, that if you're, you, your familiarity with the Bible is maybe not uh, super strong yet, this is a statement that, that connects the Old Testament with the New. 
The Old Testament, the, the first 66 books of the, the, the Bible can be thought of as a promise, God's promise to fix all that we broke in our sin. And it's a, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to send one, I'm going to redeem, I'm going to fix something later. All of that is promise. And then the New Testament, it kind of flips the script. And instead of being a promise, you see the fulfillment. Here's the means that I'm going to accomplish everything that I promised in all of those Old Testament books. What he's beginning to show us when he says, I'm going to write of all that's been fulfilled, is Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He is the substance, the fulfillment. He has accomplished something great. So when Luke, in this narration, decides to drop in, you would think, okay, he starts with Jesus doing something really cool, but no, he starts with John the Baptist, a guy who isn't even the one. More specifically, he starts with John the Baptist's parents. Why? Because John the Baptist is what the Bible calls the forerunner. We can maybe think of it as the, the preparer or the announcer, right? If you, if you got your boys together and you're about to watch a big fight, some of us have done that multiple times. You got the announcer coming out, in the red corner. And like before the guy comes out, there's this announcer preparing them to come in. That isn't just a UFC or boxing thing. This is a long historical old thing. In an award show, what happens? Somebody comes out, grabs the mic, and before the, the, the main person comes up, they announce them. If you're in the courts, a, a judge comes out and I, I, I think they do this, it's in the movies, and the the guy's like, stand up, all rise, the honorable. They're announcing the person who's coming. This is the, the process. Well, before Jesus, John the Baptist is going to be the announcer who comes onto the scene to prepare you for the fulfillment of all these things. Just like the Old Testament said long, long ago, even the Old Testament said there was a promise, a redeemer coming, and then they also said that there was someone coming before the promise to prepare the people for the promise. This is it. It's coming. All of those old books, the, the, the substance of it is going to, to be here. So then let's look at the kind of nitty-gritty of what happens in this text outside of just context. The text says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and his wife and daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were righteous before God, blameless in all the commandments But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were old. This is supposed to say probably too old to have a kid. Now, remember how we said Luke is going to be kind of like an investigative reporter when he writes this book. There's going to be a ton of evidence and details and markers and things to substantiate claims all over this book. Well, this single verse is kind of packed with that type of stuff. And one of the details that's really important to kind of give you context to understand exactly what point in history that this comes is when he begins talking about this reference to a man named Herod. Herod was a king over the land. He drops in and going, okay, this is the point of the time under this guy named Herod. But Herod wasn't just like any king. He was an awful, awful man, a powerful man who accomplished a ton of stuff and massive stuff but he's super, super devious as he did it. One of the things that he did is rebuilding the temporal, the temple in Jerusalem that people had been trying to do for a very, very long time. But despite the big things that he did, he was kind of a, a maniacal, kind of psychotic egomaniac. He rose to power, and as he rose to all of this power, he became convinced that everyone around him was trying to plot against him and kill him. He was convinced that everyone was trying to overthrow, take what he earned, take what he got. And he was so worried and so paranoid that people were trying to turn on him that he literally killed two of his wives 
and two of his sons because he was afraid that they were trying to kill him. Mind you, they did nothing. There was no plot uncovered, no scheme. Like, I just imagine dinner, be like, man, this chicken is so good. You look up, you're like, dad, no. And like, he just kills everyone because he thinks everyone's trying to overtake them. This is the man in power over everyone. He would just execute anyone because he could. He also built many mansions, one of which was a massive one with beautiful pools. And it became this regular trend that he would invite friends over for a pool party, and yet all of the friends who were invited over would end up dead. They all drowned in said pool because these people, again, he was convinced they were trying to hurt him. So it would be this deal that I just imagine myself getting an invitation from Herod to come over to the pool and be like, quick, what do I do? Tell him I have leprosy. I can't come. Like, I, I can't, no, I, I, I pass. I don't want to go to the pool party. I know what happens. It becomes historical that everyone's seeing this. This isn't like a one-time thing or conspiracy theory. He's killing tons of people. Anybody who he thinks is trying to hurt him, he's like, kill him. Like, it can't really be that bad. He would literally disguise himself, try and look like a, a beggar or a poor man, and walk through the city just to identify people who were potentially trying to hurt him. Just walking through the town, just slumming it, going like, kill that guy. Kill that one. I don't like the way he looked at me. Kill that one. This is what he did. Why, why do we need to understand this? If you are living in a space where this literally insane man is looking everywhere, trying to kill people who he suspects are trying to hurt him, it would be an awful time of living in instability and walking on eggshells. Herod was to Judea what Nero was to Rome, as far as crazy leaders go. It was bad. And we need to understand that, like living under, yeah, full, I've never talked about where I vote or anything like that. The election that we had before and the election that we have again coming, they had it worse. Worse leaders, by far, they had, this is what they're in the middle of. Give you even more context to this man's arrogance. He built all of these homes and these buildings and these monuments, and he made a decree that you had to stamp his name on every single stone. Not just the ones visible, every stone. Why? Because you will look nowhere and not see my face and my name. I will be everywhere. You touch one of those stones, I'll kill you. This is the guy who's in power. Obsessed, paranoid, ruthless, maniacal, it's not a good thing, and it's an extremely dark day in history. We're painting the picture, it was bad, like really bad, and yet there was nothing anyone could do about it. And with the context of this really terrible situation, all of a sudden two people drop into the story, Zachariah and Elizabeth. The couple, as the text says, they're barren and advanced in their years, so they, they have no family and they're old. Luke is showing that the situation for them goes from bad to worse. Not only are you under this horrific king in a dark days, their being barren meant something else. To be able to not have a family, though you want one, uh, would understandably be emotionally hard and crushing and difficult and sad. But it wasn't just sad, it was dangerous in that day. Why? Well, there's, there's no social security there's no welfare system. There's no assisted living. There's, there's no safety nets at all. So if you didn't have any kids that were brought up to, to kind of help you out, imagine you can't take care of yourself anymore. You can't make money anymore. You can't kind of take care of your house anymore. There's a good chance that you, maybe you're dying alone in your house or in the streets in a pretty awful, awful and tragic form of death. Like it's a, 
It's a devastatingly dangerous thing to be all alone. Again, this is why the Bible would make a big deal of taking care of widows and orphans. Like the, the widows are the elderly who's nobody's around to help them. They're in a bad, bad spot. It's not just sad, it's dangerous. Without children to take care of them, they, they, they have a serious problem. So being able to have children back then um, was deemed so necessary that it's considered acceptable and fine to divorce your wife if you had no kids. It was just assumed, like we can just say this, probably not a good thing. It was just assumed if you didn't have any, any kids, it was the woman's fault. And therefore a man could divorce his wife or cheat on her just to try and procure the safety of of children. If you think into the Old Testament, the story of Abraham and Sarah, this is why Abraham and Sarah kind of pull some shady stuff. All of a sudden, Sarah's like, hey, I'm going to give you my slave. You have a baby with her, and that's how we'll, we'll procure safety. She thought that she was okay with the infidelity because the fear of being alone and not being able to control things was even worse. What do we need to understand? There's no, there's no in vitro there's no infertility. There's, there's no doctors who help with this. If you had no kids, many people would take it into their own hands. I'll do whatever it takes to have a kid. Why? Because I can't control my life without it. And they would do some, some pretty messed up things in order to have kids. This is the couple that we see. So Luke paints the picture, a dark and terrible time under Herod's rule. And a couple with an even greater hardship of being barren is presented. And yet the couple is faithful to God and righteous in the sight of God blameless when it comes to the observation of the commands. Wrap your head around what that means as far as these people in all of these years waiting and hoping and praying and trying for a child. Year after year, they remain faithful to God and their house remain empty over and over. And year after year, they asked God for a child and they didn't get one. And now they're old. It seems like the window's closed, the door's closed. They're never going to be able to have one. It seems like, like it's a sure thing that, that, that life is kind of over for them in this regard. With all of that heartache on the table, many would have transferred their, their worship. They would have started hitting up maybe a fertility goddess or something else. Let's go do the crazy stuff at their temple. This God hasn't delivered for me, so I'm going to transfer my worship over here. I'm going to hedge my bets. Maybe this God will come through, and they didn't do any of that. And not only did they not do that, many people, if we have deep, long things that we want and God hasn't given them to us, we prayed year after year after year, how many people just walk away and say, forget you? Why would I obey you if you can't give me this thing that I want? They've, they've done none of that. They fear the Lord. They trust God. Even in the fear of what may come by not having any children, they are righteous in the sight of God. Not because they're perfect, but because they are faithful. Then we see Zechariah was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty. The fact that Zechariah is a priest may seem like a big deal, like, oh, it's like a big position. No, not really. Like, there's 18,000 priests, uh, and he's just one in kind of like a no-name, backwoods, dinky town, like maybe serving under 20 people. Imagine like the smallest town pastor you can possibly imagine with really like nobody around. This is kind of him. And their, their priests are split into divisions and groups, and it's custom for the different divisions to, to make their way to Jerusalem and go and kind of serve there at a different points during the, the year. Okay, it's your turn. Okay, it's your turn. Okay, it's your turn. So Luke says it's Zachariah's group's turn to go serve. So they make their way from this small town into the big city of Jerusalem. They're, they're going to serve. They're going to do their part. In Zachariah's, it's their turn to serve through casting lots, which... 
you can imagine maybe something like casting dice is selected to go in and burn incense before the Lord. This for them is a huge honor. To be able to go into the presence of the Lord and burn incense, you get to do it once in your life. Most people will never get to do it. And if you get selected, you don't get to do it again. It's a really, really big deal. This nobody from nowhere in his old age and with no accolades and no children, all of a sudden he gets to go. And this is kind of like his Super Bowl to to perform the task of burning incense before the Lord. Now, mind you, the temple's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up on a hill, so it stands up vertically in elevation. The mindset is this place is is elevation-wise the closest place around to God up in heaven. So it's already kind of special because it's up high, and then not only is he up high, he's in the temple where the presence of the Lord is, so up high and the temple, and there he gets to go in and, and burn this incense. This is, this is not something that everyone gets to do. The closest place to God and the presence of God with a job that not many people get to do, it, it's, it's a pretty big thing. Zechariah goes into the holy place and he begins to burn the incense. Now, to burn incense wasn't just a thing that hippies or potheads or Eastern religion people did biblically to burn incense is, is a symbol of our prayers going up to the Lord. Like this is old, and you can even see it in Revelation as well. To burn incense, the smoke that goes up symbolizes your, present, your prayers being given down here and going up to the Father up in heaven. He's praying up there. So Zachariah up on the hill in the presence of God, getting to do this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And as he goes and he begins to do his duty before the, the Lord and he goes in and he's, and he's saying some prayers in this holy place and, and I'm just glad to be here and this is really cool and I, I just never thought that this would happen. All of a sudden, angel of the Lord comes out and just scares the tar out of him and begins to speak. So bad that the angel has to, to calm him down. He's understandably scared. There's so many people who are like, oh, it'd be awesome to see angels or see God. Most people biblically, when they do that, they fall to their face like, I'm going to die. They're, they're terrified. This is where he gets to be in the story. And the angel says, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. Think of the words here, older man. The hope of his life has never been accomplished serving faithfully in a no-name place in the middle of nowhere, it, it just it kind of looks like his life is, is a wash. This angel begins to speak, God heard your prayers. What? Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. His name's gonna be John. I'm gonna have a son? Yeah, his name's gonna be John. And then he begins to tell him, and you'll have joy and gladness. All of that anxiety and fear and sadness and brokenness and you and your wife holding each other, just aching for... It's going to be over. And not only will a beautiful thing happen for you, many people will rejoice at the birth of this son because the son will be great before the Lord. The angel goes on to say, your son must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And here's where we get like a major clue into what's happening. And he will make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. Now, those words may not seem like a lot to you and me, but they sure did to Zechariah or anyone who would have been maybe familiar with the Old Testament. Obviously, the promise of a child was a huge thing. God heard your prayers. He's going to give you a boy. These prayers that you prayed for years, the, the answer is yes. 
He'd hoped all this time and maybe given up. Okay, so that part's great, but paired the reality of having a child, the awesomeness of what is said is what he says about the child and what the, the child's job will be. The angel says he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll turn the hearts of fathers to prepare the way for the Lord. This is a reference to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, right? Right after that, you hit New Testament. And in this book of Malachi, you get the last prophecy that was given for 400 years and counting. This is the moment that we're dropped into. This is that huge weight that I mentioned before. Let's fill in the gaps. In the Old Testament, God spoke to his people through the prophets. The message from the prophets would defer depending on time or situation or what they needed. Sometimes it was just call to repent. You guys are going crazy. Turn back to the Lord. Sometimes it is a communication of the the plans of God, the promises of God, reminders of the covenant of God, all types of things the Lord would communicate with his people through these prophets. And then in Malachi, we have just the last time that this had happened. So you have to imagine like steady state, just pretty consistent. God is speaking to us. God is speaking to us. Then all of a sudden radio silence for a year, 10 years, 50, 100, 400 years. God last spoke of sending a person who would have amazing power, power like Elijah, and this one would change the hearts of the people. This would be a great person, and he would kind of speak into and do some great things and point to something else, someone who would come and fix all that has been broken. After this amazingly hopeful promise, centuries of nothing, until 400 years later under this horrific man, this busted up nobody from nowhere who has no child and thinks his life is kind of a wash hears from God again that the promise God made long ago in Malachi is going to come about through him giving Zechariah a boy, a child. And this child wouldn't be the one, but he prepared the way for the one. In an instant, the long silence is gone and it's broken and all of a sudden, the Lord is speaking again. Here's where things get interesting. In biblical times, names actually had meanings. Like, we're weird. We just like, what syllables sound good together? And then we just make stuff up. Well, for them, their names literally had a meaning. Zechariah's name. And mind you, this, this name didn't mean this after Zechariah. It meant this long before. Zechariah's name meant God remembered again. In the darkest of days, under Herod, in 400 years of silence, when it looked about as bad as it could get, the people had to be wondering, did God forget about us? Did he abandon us? Did he select a new people? Did he lie to us all those years ago? At that time, a man named God remembered again, became the person that God showed that he had never actually forgot. If you're tempted to go like, okay, good fiction, Good storytelling, kind of neat, but like somebody probably made that story up to make an agenda fit. I would remind you part of Luke's point and even the first text. These are actual people who actually existed and left a mark in history and a breadcrumb and a trail in time and space. And they're written about and documented by people in the Bible, but also historians who have nothing to do with their faith. And later, this John who is written about, he ends up, the one who's preparing the way for the Lord, he ends up dying in the preparation of the way for the Lord. 
So if, if we're going to go all conspiracy theory, which just people love to do, then what you would have to do is make this jump that this fool carried this story for a purpose. He's sitting in jail. He knows that he's about to get his head cut off. You're like, hey, John, are you going to change your story? Like, no, 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 I'm good. I want to die for the story I made up for no reason. Like, if you want to go there, that's a lot of faith to go there, but you can. This is a pretty amazing story. Now, Zechariah doesn't respond the best. Zechariah does what uh, many men do. He doesn't think before he speaks, and he gets in trouble. Right? He says to the angel, right, hey, you're going to have a boy. Okay? One question, how am I supposed to know? Because I'm old, and like, she's kind of old, and like, we've been through this song and dance. Like, how am I supposed to really know? Like, it'd be hard to go home and be like, hey, baby, we're going to have a baby. And then like four years later, be like, I guess I heard wrong. Like, how, how do I... It's a little much. I'll give you the paraphrased, like Jesus, or the, the, the paraphrased version, the way that I see it. The angel looks back at him and be like, are you for real? Like, I'm standing in the presence of God with you next to the incense bowl, which reminds you of your prayers going up. And I'm telling you that God heard your prayer that went up and now he's saying yes and, and, and you can have joy and this is good news and, and you're all of this and, and you're not gonna believe me? Since you didn't think before you spoke, I'm going to help you out. You're going to be silent until a little Johnny boy comes. You got to some time to think about what you said here. Um, to me, that's hilarious. But then the people outside, like, I still think Luke is a little funny. The people outside who've been praying for Zechariah, right? The multitude is praying. He's going in to do this one thing. And all of a sudden, like, they don't have watches, but they're like, been a while. Like, he's old, but not that old. Like, you don't think he died, did he? Like, when's he going to come out? And, and then he kind of comes out, not able to, to talk. And, and he has to try and relay to them, like, like, what happened there in the moment? Like, I got in trouble. And he serves out the rest of his time. And then he goes home expecting a child. Just like the angel of the Lord said. His wife, Elizabeth, conceived she kept the baby hidden for five months. But her heart was full. Hear these, hear these words, because God had looked on her. That's a beautiful end of the text that we cover for today. It wasn't just Zachariah who'd been praying for a child. His wife had as well. For all those who maybe think biblically that, 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 that women aren't valued, they're making, they're making sure to show both in the story. And she had felt shame for ages of not being able to have a child of her own. Even to the point of all those years, she felt unseen, like she was hollow and unimportant, like God had just not seen her and let her be barren and didn't hear her, her prayers. And like she wasn't even worth looking at from the people around her because she couldn't have a kid. She just felt this weight and shame, even though she hadn't done anything wrong, like her life was over. And all of a sudden, she feels seen by God as he speaks down to her and goes, no, I'm going to give you a boy, the one that you've always wanted. And there's a sweetness to this story. God not only fulfilled his promise to his people in large, but he fulfilled a longing in the hope of a daughter who was faithful that he loved at the same time. He brought two things together at once out of his sovereignty and his goodness, showing he really is a good father. If this is a movie, again, this is the point where you would begin to go, Oh, it's going to get good. 
right? Narrator comes in, all of a sudden, like there's been 400 years of silence under a psychotic leader. All of a sudden it speaks, the boy is coming, he's gonna point to the one that you've always been waiting for. You're like, ooh, yeah, I'm ready to watch the rest. This looks good. God is setting up history, literally time and space to turn creation upside down by sending Jesus down, the Lord and King over all creation to change everything. And we get to hear it's coming because John the Baptist is about to be born and he's the specific one called to make everyone ready for Jesus to come and do his thing. R.C. Sproul, a theologian who passed a couple years ago, he said this, and I think it is particularly helpful to us at transitioning into a close here. This is the pattern of God throughout redemptive history that he remembers every promise he's ever made. Luke starts the accounting of what was fulfilled by Jesus by reminding us that God has never once lied. And he's never once made a promise that he hasn't come through for. This is a reminder to us, God hears every single prayer that his sons and daughters ever give. When Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for all of their life and all of those years, we need to understand God heard every single one of the prayers every single time. And God answers every single one of the prayers. His answer just maybe looks different than what we think. His answer is always yes, no, or later. But we often mistake a, a no or later for God not listening and we shake a fist at him and accuse him of being distant or avoiding us or unloving or capricious when he's never distant. He just may not have said yes and he may be saying later or he may be saying no and you just don't like it. He always is there and always listens and has never once not come through. But Luke lays before us kind of this concept with him always coming through with his promises. It's one thing to believe in God cognitively. I believe that there is a God. And it's a whole other thing to actually believe him. To believe his words and what he says and his promises. To not live by the the allure of the, the world or the allure of your desires, but by the promises of God, knowing that God has never lied and never, ever will. The question for us in the here and now is we're gonna like move towards seeing Jesus and his life and his ministry. Is, have you and I moved past the cognitive belief that there is a God to actually believing and trusting him with what he says over us? This, this is the thing, the, the understanding, the, the, the Zachariah and Elizabeth, when he promises, hey, there's something coming that's great joy for you and others. The promise of God over those he redeems is the same type of great joy. I'm going to send one who's going to put together all the things that have been broken. Do you live in light of that promise or do you just think, well, I think there actually is a God? Do you live in light of it, of a rock solid belief that God has spoken a promise to you and he, he, he's going to keep it? Friends, if we look in culture, we will be the weirdos if we live on the promises of God. But this is the call. Do you believe him and do you trust him? My hope for us is that we would have wave after wave of God's love washed over us as we get into this book. And that we become more and more clear that God has sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. God, as a good father, sent his son to find you and put you back together. He sent his son to put back together what was broken and seemed impossible to fix. 
Our redeeming God promised a savior and then delivered, and he's promised that he'll send him back again to put all things back together fully one day. Do you believe this, and is your life formed by that truth? It's the question we're going to have to wrestle with for quite a, quite a bit of time as we keep seeing Jesus over and over is what does my trust and living in light of believing God through what he's done in Jesus look like? How does that meet, the, the, the rubber meet the road in that belief in my Monday, in my Wednesday afternoon, in my Friday night? How does that belief actually crush into and smash into the regular parts of my life? That leads hand in hand to the other question we presented last week and probably plan to present in front of us many times over the next year. Who is this Jesus to you? Not who do others say he is, not, not who do you pretend he is, not who do you want him to be, who is he to you now? Is he the savior king who's come to find you? Which means you recognize I was lost and broken and I couldn't fix it and it is him and it is all him. Was he just a story? Just a guy that other people believe and he existed in history and he did stuff. Who is he? And have you submitted your life to him fully and completely that you trust his love and his leadership over you even when it presses against the, the preferences that you may have? And is this Jesus that you know, is he showing you that he's the king that you must follow and that God is a father that you can trust? Father who sent his son to accomplish and fulfill what you couldn't and I couldn't. And the hope is that we believe and lean into that more and more, almost to the point where other people consider us reckless. I believe in you. And if you've not submitted your life to this Jesus, the question I just have for you is, why not now? There's not a better time. There's not anything better that you're going to find. Don't hedge your bets. Turn to him now. God has proven his love for you and that he's a good father by sending this Jesus. Man, I'd love to pray with you about that. If you haven't, somebody else can as well. Be careful of always believing cognitively in God and never bowing a knee to him. Would you turn to him? All that have followed God and profess have done the same thing. Man, my heart would be for you. Please don't wait. We'll come and we'll take communion today. Man, you guys can come back up. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup and the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord, before he died, instituted the, the, the Last Supper communion for us, and we do it regularly as a reminder. We come up and we take the, the bread and we dip it into the cup and it symbolizes the bread as his body that was broken and, 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 and the, the drink is his blood that was spilled. It is you and only you and it is my trust in you alone that saves me. I cannot save myself. I cannot fix myself. I cannot make myself desirable in front of a holy God. I can do none of it, but it is you and only you. So we come up and we take each time in a form of worship and belief, Jesus, form my life more and more and more on what you've done. Let me turn to it. Let me see that you've paid the full price. Let me see that you've paid for my sins. Let me see that your work is enough. Even if I have a busted up week, you are good. So we pray that you would come and take from the table and that your heart would be just encouraged. Jesus is enough and your good father sent him. Pray that you would come and feed at the table and your heart would be 
uh, really just deepen their faith. You don't have to be a member to take. Just that your faith be in Jesus, but in worship. And the hope is that you would wrestle with who is God to you now and who is Jesus to you. Ask the Spirit, hey, what, what are you wanting to show me about Jesus? How are you wanting me to live in light of that more? Would you help me to trust you in light of it? And then at some point come and, and take from the, the bread and the cup. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for sending Jesus. Help me trust in him more. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Thank you for what you've done. We're going to try and keep carving out some time on this backside. As you know, we play a couple songs on the backside. And and, uh, I talked to Garrett a little bit before. We're wanting to carve out more time for you to pray in response to the word. And slowly but surely over the last couple weeks, that time has been like pushed out a little bit. And so what we're going to do is we're going to fight to take it back. And so there's not a point in service where we don't know like what to do or anything like that. We're trying to love you well by giving you just some moments to pray interact with the text, go to the Lord, do business with the Lord and however you may need to. Ask him for what you need. Go to him as a good father. Go to him asking for whatever you need. Pray in response to the text and worship and come to the table. But we're gonna kind of fight to take a little bit of that time back and know that that's the best way that we can love you is by giving you more time to pray and just kind of see the father and speak to him. We stand and pray with me.